Yeah, it's a, and I don't mean it sarcastically. It's a, I love doing this. It's um, this is my Zen meditation, as silly and weird as that may sound. Actually, twice a week. Yeah, twice a week actually, and uh, soon soon three. Uh, so it's gonna be a why not? That's that's what I. Uh, we haven't decided yet, but uh, I think I'm gonna start pushing us into doing a more regular sort of. Uh, we're doing a thing with drifts that I really like, and we started having sort of random conversations, more of a schizoanalysis of things, but a little bit of a procedural sort of process. And I'm trying to make it so I regularly bring in a text or two related, push people, you know, keep it moving. And I think uh, I've got to figure out what that looks like. But it was like early on, uh, Jack uh, started one of the first side groups besides AO, which was uh, our literature group. And the way it functioned was really strange because it was kind of uh, every week a new book, a new text, a new reading. And it kept a really nice vibe going because it just was like, it wasn't as heady. I mean, some of the texts were, but generally it's not like I read three paragraphs in a row and now my brain's dead. It's more, hey, uh, oh, it's, uh, oh yes, no, the people who walk, like, like wonderful texts. So, Once like, walk away from all the yeah, like Ur- Ursula Le Guin, like, like just amazing pieces that are not hard reads at all. Um, but like really interesting reads and it kept a good vibe. So I'm trying to figure out how we do more groups like that, uh, which I think can be positive. We'll see. Um, today's going to be a fun one because, uh, we had one question submitted. So we're going to end up mostly, I think just having a general conversation around it. We'll see what happens. Who knows? I thought we were here to talk about the nuances of James Cameron and Charles Chaplin. Oh, dude. Uh, actually, maybe. Yeah, there we go. Maybe. Um, because a film definitely plays into this. But uh, I'll go ahead and kick us off. And we'll uh, today's going to be different. And I'll talk about how kind of we do this. Because we haven't done one of these in uh, almost just over a year. And I think it's worthwhile. So uh, we'll talk through it. But uh, first off, I want to say hello. And thank all of you for joining us today at the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. This is our second time around and our second time through 4.3, finally having completed the entire section. Dear God, uh, it's a lot. And there's just a metric ton in there. uh, And uh, this time around, we ended up taking, I think, more time through 4.3, which is good, but there's still a lot of points that I think got left by the wayside. And so much of it is absolutely central to not only the entire book, But as we move into the positive tasks of schizoanalysis, understanding the negative, understanding how capitalism functions within desire and plays with it is uh, just flat necessary. So uh, we thought we would take today and rather than jump straight into 4.4, we'd spend some time talking through, you know, any questions or uncertainties people may have around various bits. I know we have uh, one person who's got a question, the only person who submitted one. Uh, well done server. Um, but it's, uh, we'll wait for uh, Brendan to uh, join when we get to that. Uh, we will re-ask the question then. Basically his question was what is a psychotic? Because it seems like they don't have a lot of, (laughs) um, uh, standards in that. Uh, and I'll just go ahead and link his comment in the, um, the, the words get used in psychoanalytic theory randomly. So 
we'll get to that. But uh, sort of to kick us off, uh, because I think the best place to kick us off would be at the beginning. Uh, that first paragraph. I want to talk through it because to me it is, uh, I think, a descriptor of what they are trying to say through the rest of the section. So just to, just to quickly read through it. The schizoanalytic argument is simple. Desire is a machine, a synthesis of machines, a machinic arrangement, desiring machines. The order of desire is the order of production. All production is at once desiring production and social production. We therefore reproach psychoanalysis for having stifled this order of production, for having shunted it into representation. Far from showing the boldness of psychoanalysis, this idea of unconscious representation marks from the outset its bankruptcy or its abnegation, an unconscious that no longer produces, but is content to believe. The unconscious believes in Oedipus, it believes in castration in the law. It is doubtless true that the psychoanalyst would be the first to say that, everything considered, belief is not an act of the unconscious. It is always the pre-conscious that believes. Shouldn't it even be said that the psychoanalyst who believes, uh, it is the psychoanalyst who believes, the psychoanalyst in each of us? Would belief then be an effect on the conscious material that the unconscious representation exerts from a distance? But inversely, who or what reduced the unconscious to the state of representation, if not, first of all, a system of beliefs put in the place of productions? In reality, social production becomes alienated in allegedly autonomous beliefs at the same time that desiring production becomes enticed into allegedly unconscious representations. As we have seen, it is the same agency, the family, that performs this double operation, distorting and disfiguring social desiring production and leading it to an impasse. There's a, this, this paragraph I think actually outlines very nicely how they're gonna spend the majority of this critique of psychoanalysis and this critique of capitalism uh, in this section, with that first line being it, essentially it. Um, ultimately desire is a machine, these machines connect as they do and they produce. Everything ultimately is out of production. However, there is representation and the critique of representation that they've been making throughout the entire book sort of comes to a very sharp point that representation has taken over and is now a thing that we utilize to believe in things, not to know, not to experience, not to have built ourselves, but instead to believe in patriotism, America, wealth, all of these ridiculous things. Um, we're content to believe this to me is a wonderful paragraph to start with. And I just wanted to make sure everyone is generally comfortable with how I just sort of explained it, because I think it's a, it's a, we'll say a starting point, a foundational point, you might say. So the schizoanalytic uh, uh, argument is really an argument for the, um, for the natural, uh, <clears throat> desiring production right, of, and social production. That's a, that's a natural uh, form of um, thought and behavior, right? Yeah, essentially saying um, there is an emergent nature to, to things, and even social things. There's a, there's a productive nature, um, and this would be also their critique of capital. And, they, and as Deleuze outlined, he believes it's also ultimately Marx's critique of capital, um, the way it functions that 
Um, we've kind of gotten to this point where production ultimately produces value, but somehow we've gotten it to the point where value somehow produces production, or we believe this is the case, this quasi-cause, the sebrabatsur, the falling back on production that the socius or the body without organs does, uh, is this weird movement of pretending that representation or the, the, the thing that is emergent is actually the cause. Um, I, I think... Uh, I would I would ask uh, J.K. Uh, Jackass too. Uh, the use of the word natural is the only thing that like I would say f I felt like a record scratch, because it is a. It's not so much like if if you mean natural as in, um, non-determinant or sort of happens on its own organically emergently that I would agree with if that's the meaning I guess Jack J.K. Yeah, that's 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 what I meant that um, that it is the healthy. Um, you know, uh, um, the human being, you know, right, coming into the world with these uh, desiring productions, you know, and, um, but it's, uh, you know, um, taken over by the representations of, of the socius and the, and the belief systems of, of psychoanalysis and cap capitalism. So he's going to go into talking about myths and legends that are represent. Is that that kind of represent that kind of belief system? Yeah, I would even say it's it's a little bit even smaller than saying like because it is capitalism. He is saying that it is psychoanalysis, but it is the family where it starts. It's the parent who tells the child, Shh, "You're not supposed to talk in here. Uh, don't jump around like that. Eat your food. Uh, finish your plate. Uh, if you're good, you'll get a toy later." Um, <clears throat> these sorts of things. Uh, the nuclear family is effectively in charge of axiomatizing any subject and, and treating them and teaching them that it's less about the emergent life that they're living, but instead learning to conform to the rules and representations you're told in order to function. Um, uh, so the family tends to be the place where a lot of this actually starts. Is he saying that the family is also a victim of this, um, of the socius and victim of this kind of um, uh, representation? Part of the, part of the machinery. I'm hesitant to say victim. I would say part of the machinery. It, it, they're produced through representation and through this process of production and this falling back on. And so it's like so calling it a victim, uh, calling any single insta instantiation of things like a victim or a cause or anything like that, I think I would be hesitant more saying uh, the the nature of the family machine is that the family, the father, the mother, and the child, uh, the child has all of his social realities filtered through the parents and as such the lens of the parents and the way they tell him to behave in society ultimately causes the way he sees society, not an emergent sort of reality of, oh, I've experienced this without you know, inter interference or having everything reduced to these states of representation. Uh, an example, uh, we recently, uh, where I live, the neighborhood, uh, just in general, I think everywhere is seeing a weird uptick in the perception of crime. Um, and a neighbor of mine, who's a very nice guy, and he's got a couple kids, uh, made a comment that, uh, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for people, I have a lot of empathy, but it's just, these are just lazy people who are stealing. It's the only reason they steal. And that that kind of thing and that lesson that's being taught is what we're talking about here. The the it's laziness for someone to steal. That's the drive and the reason they're doing it. 
this this representation of why a thief does it, or instead of the, you know, a sort of gathering what someone's sort of lived experience is, uh, or how desiring machines connect, I think is sort of a good example of that. Jack, I said I know you've been wanting to chat for a second. Which no, go I for it. I don't want to. No, no, this is meant to be. This is meant to be like a open conversation like that. So, like, because we're we don't have a. I wanted to kick us off on the first paragraph because I, I do think, and I don't think anyone's going to disagree. It's a really nice crisp way of sort of summing up what we're going to be talking about. And then we can kind of use the questions we get from here to sort of bounce around the section, unless anyone disagrees with that. I think it's a, how I'm hoping to do it. Yeah, I'm okay with balancing here. I don't think we have to go paragraph. I mean, we've already done paragraph by paragraph. Um, yeah, the only, the only reason I, I question the use of the word natural is just because there's a lot of baggage with that term. Um, JK, I, I suspect you're using it because we read the Lucretius essay yesterday. Uh, and that was one of the big surprises for me in the essay is that Deleuze does qualify a naturalism, right? Um, and qualifying an essentialism, um, which like, it's really surprising. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's certainly one question we can ask here is like, what would naturalism mean in a uh, conversation about desiring production, right? Because the similarity is certainly the that he maintains here and with watery um, a use of production, right? Um, and a, and a, a pain to set, to clarify the distinction between production and product. But there's also a different stake here, right? Which is that. Um, I mean, at some level, difference is a common thing in his work, but something's going on here, right, where Deleuze is not worried about difference being thought of in the same anti-natural way, even though some of that does come to come to bear on what we're reading here, yeah? Kind of shifts to kind of a different argument in some ways, yeah? Well, I think the example of family is probably a good way for us to start parsing what he means when when we say natural or how we're talking about it. Because, again, um, everyone always will always have, a, in, in essence, a biological father and mother. Like, we have families, we have people we grow up around, whatever we may call them. There is a collective of sorts. We're not solo creatures that are left to fend for ourselves, dropped in a field by our mother and left left to go like there is a, a natural sort of social side to that the the way family functions within capital as they go into it uh, uh bottom of 297 is the part i'm going to quote real quick um of course the father acts on the child's unconscious but does he act as a head of a family in an expressive familial transmission or rather as the agent of a machine in a machinic information or communication and he uses the example of Judge Schreber. Schreber's desiring machines communicate with those of his father, but it is in this very way that they are from early childhood, the libidinal investment in the social field. In this field, the father has a role only as an agent of production and anti-production. This, this play that he's talking about here, which is a evolution sort of a Freud, is again... This is not so much saying that the, the father is out of nowhere doing a thing or that it's a generalized familial transmission, uh, but instead that there are 
parts of machines and machines and machines, and that the family is ultimately connected to all of them. And they are, uh, for lack of a better word, almost the, the bubble around the child. Uh, they are the machines that feed information in and out the flows of whatever is happening socially. And this setup changes things. The production couple, the desiring machines and the social field give way to a representative couple of an entirely different nature, family myth. Once again, have you ever seen a child at play how he already populates the technical social machines with his own desiring machines? Uh, the very easy way to sort of say this, and I watch my son do it a lot with Legos or magnetiles and all sorts of block stuff that he can connect. Whatever is happening, he builds, he literally is building machines. And he says this, and it's the weirdest thing. I didn't teach him this. I don't even like use these words, but he will put it together and he'll go, this is a shooter machine. This is a chopping machine. And he like builds like weird shit. It's nonsensical, but he, he refers to it as this. It's absolutely the way that he thinks he's wanting to build things that interact, that deal with the world, that do these things. And as such, I am without almost thinking about it, I am building machines for him when I critique or when I comment or when I teach him about social things outside of him very much in the same vein. And his desiring machines are constantly trying to connect to that. Thinking of what might be a good way to distinguish between like the family acting as an apparatus of the social machine and the family acting as uh, you know, familial and I guess uh, expressive is the word that Dolores and Guitar are using here. And like the example I'm thinking of from my uh, own childhood was when I was like, in the Boy Scouts grew, growing up, and at some point all of my friends had left, and I was the last one in it, and I wanted to quit, and my dad made me stay in it to finish out the last badges because, like, he thought, you know, it's a good thing to uh, teach your son to uh, stick to something and finish it, and, um, yeah, so there's this way that he's, like, relaying this social message and his relation to me as, like, my father in, you know, the sense of both biological and... Um, familial uh, love is uh, th those are totally um, incidental. It's more about the proximity of the father or the parent and their uh, status as an authority figure that allows them to function as like a relay in the machine. Yeah, and you don't even know you're doing it as a parent. It's a it's terrifying. You'll find yourself. I've I've used the example before where I've. Uh, I said to my son, well, you need to finish your plate. I don't know why I told him this. He didn't want to eat the rest of the food. What a silly thing. But it's it's like embedded in me because my parents very much, that was the rule of the house. And these little things essentially are building things that are then coextensive with the social, with the delirium, with social delirium, with the field of delirium that sort of exists as that uh, position. Who are we culturally, socially? What's our place in sort of all of this? Uh, very often, you will even hear people say, we're debating, by the way, about whether or not to send our kid to school, how we're going to do it. You can't do public. It's a nightmare. Um, but very quickly, the first response most people have is, if you don't send them to school, how will they get along with anyone socially? And it's this really strange acknowledgement of the number one sort of purpose of that or of a parent or anyone when they're teaching a child is, how will they get along in the delirium? How will we adjust them properly? And we even use the term, uh, we need to make sure your child's properly adjusted to the world, which is uh, interesting that we even use such explicit terms. 
but this is the role of the parents. And it's, it's again, not wild as a thing to say parents, that's their job is to prepare you for the world, to teach you how to be, to do all sorts of things from tell you how Santa Claus only gives the good kids toys. And that's why the poor kids don't have any, uh, as an example, um, to terrible lessons. I think that, uh, People do internalize and start to learn the myths of things, the the way that we're supposed to be, the areas you don't go to. Why don't you? I just said you don't, and I'm in charge, and that's my job as the man and the father. These things are said, and they're said quickly, and they very much teach the way that we're supposed to be, the, the, the lines of our lives that we're supposed to obey. Um, the line I think I like in here, the... The father will be inflated with all the forces of myth and religion and with phylogenesis so as to ensure that the little familial representation has the appearance of being coextensive with the field of delirium. So I will continue talking if no one else is going to. I can literally go for fucking hours. Um, in, in line with that, he, they then continue and they immediately dive into Miller. Uh, Oedipus or Hamlet led to this point of autocritique, the expressive forms Myth and tragedy denounced as conscious beliefs or illusions, nothing more than ideas. The necessity of a scouring of the unconscious. Schizoanalysis as a crotage of the unconscious, the metrical fissure in opposition to the line of castration. Uh, this, this huge rant they go on, this, this play is very much about uh, moving away from the, the tragic representation, the, the getting back to the... the the term natural now I'm going to use, God damn it, JK. Um, but it's a, it's a fair one. Um, getting back to the, the connective structure that is at the base, our desire as it's produced, as it connects, as it does things, rather than the representations which I believe they, they produce but ultimately stifle them or control them. Um, explicitly talking about uh, Nietzsche as he moves forward and then Foucault in the same way and talks through this huge play towards Freud just discovering this desiring economy the same way that Ricardo uh, realized that labor is a thing that could be abstracted. Freud is able to abstract desire and we need to understand how that operates and how that plays as a separate part of production and how it produces through these connections and the things that it builds in the machines of desire and ultimately social production that are coextensive and these elements that move that ultimately do produce the representations. But then we do this funny thing where we have the representations pretend like they produce the desire. Oh. I have ja a, Misha. Hello. Question. Hello. What's up? Um, quick question. Uh, and that is in the last paragraph of the section. Um, they talk about, um, I think that's a bit of a famous line. Um, oh, wait, now I can find it. The one that we haven't, the, deter, in the, in the, with the deterritorialization, we have, haven't seen anything yet. Yes. Um, uh, but now it's, I'm, I'm reading over it now, but. So. Producing a new land. Is that the line you're talking about the last paragraph of, so you want us to move from the first to the last paragraph. We're just skipping the whole middle. Is that how we're doing it for you, Misha? Yeah. 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 Oh, fair yeah. enough. Fair enough. Um, 
to just say, I think what I think you're talking about. Um, that is, that is what the completion of the process is not a promised and a pre-existing land, but a world created in the process of its tendency, it's coming undone, it's deterritorialization. The movement of the theater of cruelty, for it is only the theater of production, there where the flows cross the threshold of deterritorialization and produce a new land, not at all a hope, but a simple finding, a finished design where the person who escapes causes other escapes and marks out the land while deterritorializing himself, an active point of escape where the revolutionary machine, the artistic machine, the scientific machine, and the schizoanalytic machine become parts and pieces of one another. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. Um, but the, the specific quote I can't find, maybe it's earlier in the text, but... I was wondering on our ongoing um, uh, uh, playing with um, uh, accelerationism um, because this to me sounds exactly like why Deleuze can be uh, can be um, framed in a way accelerationist. No. Um, well, there's there's some assumptions that go with that. So first, we have to assume that when we talk about deterritorialization, that we're pushing and accelerating. But we're not. I, I, I don't foresee that there's a necessity that we have one follow the other necessarily. Some make the interpretation that when he says deterritorialization, he's referring specifically to capitalist deterritorialization and its function, and that we should do what we can to accelerate that. To me, uh, to just, you know, it's fair, Jack, to qualify accelerationism, it's the idea that, uh, at least in my understanding of the readings I've done, that um, the contradictions within capitalism um, and ultimately the way that it functions, we can push on the gas, uh, light a fire underneath it, you might say, to cause deterritorialization to happen more and more quickly until we get to a point where capitalism can't handle it and we find what comes next. Is that a fair? Yeah, although I think, um, I think uh, actually Deleuze and Guattari seem to put it here, in my opinion, more like... Um, not necessarily to to push it to its own destruction, but rather to just push the its tendency um, further and further and further instead of trying to find a complete molar alternative. <clears throat> and and that's when they say uh, when it comes to the retalitorizations of the of the, the neurotic retalitorizations and the psychotic retalitorizations, they cry out more perversion, more artifice. To a point where the earth becomes so artificial that the movement of deterritorialization creates of necessity and by itself a new earth. <clears throat> so, uh, my first question would be, I don't see how this is involving the molar. I, I, I get that it is, a, it is generally speaking coextensive, but the very clear line they have through most of this is that they are focused on the, I wouldn't say the subject, but uh, the, the personal um, maybe the subject, um, where it's about, uh, they use the term one, uh, within one person. We, we cry out more perversion, more office to a point where the earth becomes artificial. Yes, but they're not necessarily talking about the earth fully at grand. They're talking about the familial neurosis in the couch, the little island with its commander, the psychoanalyst. They're talking about the parts of a person, the, the, the setup there. Because then, at that point, it's not that the world changes. Uh, I, I tend to be 
very in line with Holland's take on this, that uh, it's not so much about an accelerationist perspective, but instead almost a destruction of the fascist within, and that uh, at some point you actually personally enter a state of what might be termed a permanent revolution, that you just simply are always in that place yourself. And by doing so, you, lands don't mean anything to you, quite literally. You're always in a new land. You find it. There is a finished design. The person who escapes it naturally is causing other escapes just by being in the position that they're in. Uh, it's a very, uh, I would say, molecular view of it rather than a molar view. It's why I've never really understood the accelerationist take because they've never really focused on here's what we do as a society. They're very almost uh, like... Buddha-like focused on the working on yourself and uh, the the fascist within rather than, oh, here's how you change society. It's like you can't change society until you've fixed yourself. And by changing yourself, you naturally cause escapes in others and therefore can cause that knock-on effect. Okay, now, now, now I'm very confused. How so? Uh, um, I, I I don't recognize that that thing in what you said about accelerationism about the focusing on the self. No, no, I'm saying accelerationism doesn't. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. Sorry, I, I specifically yeah. accelerationism yeah. focuses on what we can do at the meta level, at the molar level. Uh, we need to we need to vote for Trump. Like that, I've heard accelerationists yeah, yeah, say yeah. that. Oh yeah, yeah. So exactly. So that's what I'm trying to say. Is that my original point was. I feel like D and G right now are posing a molecular accelerationism. You mean molar? No. No, right? Like at the at the at the molecular level, they want more artifice. No. Ye I, I think he, you, your mic yes. is kind of quiet. Did you say opposing or posing? Uh, posing. Yeah, I, I think Brits heard you say opposing. I heard you oh. say opposing. Oh, no. <laughs> fuck, man. <laughs> um, so to say, to say clearly, to me, this is all about a molecular revolution and molecular accelerationist. Yes, sure, for for sure. I I have a tough time reconciling accelerationism as being anything but the meta molar grand so social movement uh, because. That's the vast majority of the writings. There are people who disagree. I, I'm very much in the, this is about personally getting yourself to the place where you've deterritorialized yourself, where you have gotten rid of the fascist yourself, where you've embraced change and being and shifting. And, uh, you're able to understand the emergent nature of your own existence and embrace that rather than the yeah, yeah, yeah. determinant representations. But I think I think it's I think in your, in your framing you're you're missing I think um, the 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 golden the golden middle or however you call it, and that is that I think it's also silly to only focus on 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 the self. So it's kind of like you have to do it in 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 every interaction, not only um, not only in the um, not only in the in the subjective sphere or the. 
So, yes. So let me, let me qualify slightly because I'm not disagreeing. When I specifically say within oneself, I include all of that. I don't necessarily believe in a centered subject as a thing. Uh, okay. The sphere, the sphere that is Brooks that you can't tell me where I end and someone begins, but the difference would be voting for Trump in order to speed up America a eh, little fast for me. You're li- that's, that's a little, little different, but uh, my talks with you uh, right here, this is every interaction. Absolutely. And anything I touch that in theory, I may be part of, I consider as part of that overall massive desiring machines that somehow has been called me. So I'm, I'm with you on that. And so if uh, that version of accelerationism, I, if you, if anyone has writings on it, I'd love to find it. Um, I've, I've bought a bunch of accelerationist readers and authors, and they all end up in this really weird, um, let's see how terrible it can get for marginalized people. Fuck it. Who cares? I'm safe because I'm white sort of mentality. And um, it bothers me a great deal. So... Yeah, to be honest, if, if 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 I can make a bit of a confession, maybe what I like the most about accelerationism is is the name. To be honest, I just I think it's such a fun word. Um, <laughs> well, it is, and it it is. No, and I and I, Paul Varillo, Paul Varillo have, has some exceptional books on on speed and how it's affected us and how it's shifted. That I think also uh, built into me the same sort of inkling and and angle that I'm. I love the concept. And I appreciate it. I appreciate the mentality of like, things are broken. Like, why am I supporting this? I, I, I get it. And I get some level of that, uh, at least intuitively. But very much there's a, it misses a lot of the problems. Because at, at that point, you start becoming someone who has determined what the goal is. And you believe you exist and that you're doing something right and now you're in a place that is not a good place to be uh, as far as desiring machines or representation are concerned. And uh, again, uh, the fact that in Anti-Oedipus, they explicitly say nothing has ever been died under its own contradictions. Um, that uh, we, we can't break the system like that. That's not what it's for. Uh, Boastgird says, might be obnoxiously technical, well, we love obnoxiously technical, but important to remember, you can accelerate while maintaining speed. This is, this is actually true. Paul Verillo, uh, by the way, underrated author on, on a lot of his stuff uh, on sort of the acceleration of life uh, worth reading. I've loved it personally. It's not for everyone, but I dig it. The ability uh, changing direction, I think, does it. Oh, thank you, Boastgard. Thank you for the physics lesson. I was waiting for Doug. I assume Doug, Mr. Physics, would say, but... Uh, speed is ultimately just magnitude and uh, an object which experiences either a change in magnitude or velocity vector can be ex- said to accelerating. Um, and negative acceleration yeah. is also acceleration. That's fair. That's yeah. Fair. So deceleration is also acceleration and yeah. And um, any force that is perpendicular to your line of velocity will deflect it without changing the magnitude of the vector. So it doesn't change your speed. So you can rotate with, you can accelerate by rotating or revolving uh, without changing your speed. If you drive in a circle um, at like five miles an hour, technically you're accelerating. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's the, the, the shifting of things, the playing with that. uh, Yeah. 
I also feel like it, it, it is a really interesting feeling because you feel like you're being warped, right? The f and you don't have that when you, when you accelerate in, a, in, a, in one direction. Well, it depends on the magnitude. I mean, again, this is, this is the fun part of acceleration. It's all about the magnitude and you as the sort of center of that. Um, I, I've been in a car and I've been in very, very, very fast cars that you fucking really did feel going straight to the line, accelerating, but, uh, turning it all, uh, suddenly you do feel a shift. And, uh, I think that's, that, that, that feels like actually the point. Um, this is because the decoding and deterritorialization of flow define the, define the very process of capitalism. Uh, that is, in its, its essence, its tendency, and its external limit. And I, I think I'm just still a little bit confused about when deterritorialization is, let's say, a... Um, <laughs> Sorry, sorry if I if I if I if I put it a bit non non uh, mm, please please, but that deterritorialization is basically a uh, uh, some sort of rebel re re rebellion against capitalism, and when deterritorialization, um, as here described, is uh, as a, is, is is seen as a definition of capitalism. And I know about the about the deterritorialization and reterritorialization, like the left hand, right hand thing, the combo that it always goes together. But I think what I find difficult to understand is I have a certain image of deterritorialization as a certain undoing or fundamental changing of the uh, like the suffocating um, uh, uh, limit setting of capitalism. But then a sentence like this says that it's completely part of it again, and and that's why I'm sometimes confused how they how they view deterritorialization. Um, so let's break apart a couple things there. So the first is we shouldn't presume that they're necessarily like hateful of every part of capitalism. So when they say like capital or they're critiquing it, they're not saying like anything that it is or it does is evil and bad. That's not. The setup. It's a. Uh, some people do this with Marx as well. That Marx was like, "Oh, this is all shit. Fuck all this. Uh, whatever." The deterritorialization, as it operates within capital, uh, and and as it functions, has to do with literally how the flows of everything play out. Um, we're always in a weird place within capitalism. That um, how to put it. Um, let me find a specific line that I want to um, play with. Um, Deterritorialization is the process of uh, freeing desire from established objects and organs. Uh, the, this is the setup that happens. Capitalism plays in this space very specifically. Um, uh, do, 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 one sec. Um, I'm going to read from Holland. Uh, Deleuze and Guattari used deterritorialization, now in the social register, to designate the freeing of labor power from specific means of production, as in the case of English peasants who were banished or freed by the Enclosure Acts from common land when it was enclosed for sheep grazing. 
Some peasants, of course, would eventually find jobs working at looms in the nascent textile industry, their labor power thereby reattached or re-territorialized onto a new means of production. The process of deterritorialization and re-territorialization accompany the fundamental mechanization of capital, axiomatization. It operates by conjoining deterritorialized resources and appropriating the surplus arising from their re-territorializing conjunction. The original capitalist axiom, for example, conjoined deterritorialized wealth, a monetary wealth no longer embodied in landed property, with deterritorialized labor power bereft of any means of subsistence. The axiomatization of these deterritorialized flows linked liquid wealth invested in means of production with free workers with nothing to sell but their labor power. Subsequently, the continuing development of capitalism has axiomatized many other resource flows, knowledge, skills, taste, uh, go to social media and like literally everything, and integrated them into the production process. So what we're talking about very particularly with these flows is the nature of capital is to not give a shit about what labor does or how things are produced or where their value comes from, but instead to deterritorialize the overall flow around that and ultimately re-territorialize it somewhere else or some other place in order to effectively gain uh, surplus and uh, profit from it. Uh, this nature you can kind of spot in a shitload of ways. Um, people doing a thing that doesn't necessarily drive a lot of profit suddenly gets completely co-opted. Lo and behold, here it is. Social media is actually a really good example of this. The internet is not, is not uh, far off as well. Uh, art, video games, uh, you name it. You can find a million ways that people and their work uh, is slowly being separated from quite literally their genuine creative process to absolutely re-territorialized as a simplistic, productive-based job. And when I say job, I mean the uh, uh, sort of shit labor, uh, bullshit job workforce that is able to continue to do these things. It, it puts workers in that very specific spot. This natural thing that is sort of happening underneath it is the deterritorialization they're talking about. So when we're in uh, AO and we're having the same question here and they say, um, and the, specifically this section, um, they localize social and mental alienation on a single line, uh, referring to Lang and Cooper, um, uh, and tend to consider them as identical by showing how familial agent extends the one into the other. Between the two, however, the relationship is that of an included disjunction. This is because the decoding and the deterritorialization of flows define the very process of capitalism, its essence, its tendency, its external limit, everything about it. The deterritorialization of flows in general merges with mental alienation in as much as it includes the re-territorializations that permit it to subsist only as the state of a particular flow, a flow of madness, that is defined thus because it is charged with representing whatever escapes axiomatics. Uh, as you do things and as you decide not to take part in society, you're, you're maybe doing your thing, but you are immediately re-territorialized as mad and as someone who is non-productive, as someone who doesn't necessarily deserve a chance to live or breathe or have medical care or a house over your head. Um, we, we do weird shit like that. Um, literally got in a fight with my father about this uh, last week. Pretty bad one. Um, this 
this play that's happening is what they're talking about very particularly, this included disjunction, the, the way that capitalism functions at its base. I don't know if that helped at all, but um, if it didn't, I'm happy to go on or have someone else talk as well. Yeah, just just a quick clarification question because it does help. But so would the would the deterritorialization of something like producing art be the fact that it can be sold for money? Is let's talk a- about let's talk about um, specifically producing art. It's a great one. Um, I am I make. Um, I, I, a guy I really like online, I got some statues made. Uh, he, he molds bismuth. It's really fascinating and it's pretty cool. Um, I really like it. Th- these statues, um, he ended up uh, at some point, uh, someone noticed and they started talking to him about being able to produce it at length and buying the rights to use his setup. <laughs> so he had a choice. He just, he chose against it, but he had a choice to basically go, oh, sure, I'll, I'll help you factorize factorize this product uh, automate it so we can have larger amounts of money but suddenly that thing that he's doing is no longer his thing he's no longer coded as the sculptor or the artist now he's been displaced re-territorialized elsewhere because once this becomes automated what does he have uh, are there table makers sure they exist but how many table makers are there shoemakers how many anything computer builders uh used to be a thing once upon a time not so much anymore uh these things sort of shift over time as people uh have how to put it um it as as capitalism sort of breaks down the literal coding of uh meaning in the process of production or your place within it it doesn't leave you to disappear and find your own way that's not really how capital operates. It didn't operate that way with the the people who used to just work the fields and it got shifted to where it was all for livestock and now they had to find jobs elsewhere. It didn't just go, well, you're out. It's We now have other excess labor. You can do this other shittier job. Um, think of it as skilled labor that now has to work in a factory for doing in, doing mindless you know, manufacturing jobs. This shift in this play are things that go back and forth in capital and it's core to it. But so the, is in this case, deterritorialization from capitalism similar to Marx's alienation from labor? Like is, is that kind of what, you, because that's. Yes. Well, to them, to them, it's, it's, a, and I'll let someone else talk, but to me, my understanding is that they're talking about it part and parcel, that this is where the, I think it was even what they directly say in the, in the section I was reading, um, that um, uh, the deterritorialization of flows in general effectively merges with mental alienation, in as much as it includes the reterritorializations that permit it to subsist only as the state of a flow, a flow of madness. This immediate, this thing to them is part and parcel. Again, the social alienation. And mental alienation, as they say, we seek in vain to assign one side or the other as long as we establish a relation of exclusion between the two. It's like, no, they merge. These are the same thing. This, the way that we see ourselves in society, the representations it plays, the way that our meaning is sort of deterritorialized and broken down and then reassembled for us, we are reproduced 
Uh, they say, one can find the form of social alienation in action in all the re-territorializations of capitalism, in as much as they keep the flows from escaping the system and maintain labor in the axiomatic framework of property and desire in the applied framework of the family. But this social alienation includes in its turn mental alienation, which finds itself represented or re-territorialized in neurosis, perversion, and psychosis, mental illnesses. But, but then, but then so I, I, I really uh, am following you here. But then what I find difficult to combine is how they also use deterritorialization as a force that can um uh that can respond to capital in a uh, breaking down kind of way um that actually is a, seen as a radical act from a schizo analytic viewpoint because that's also how they use I, deterritorialization i think the easier it's tough for me to make this leap i've got to jump to logic of sense where i think a lot of this is a little helped. Um, at some point, I'll have the recordings online. Um, very specifically, the act of deterritorialization is the breaking down and neutralization of, of forced meaning and representation, ideas on high. In um, logic of sense, Deleuze makes a series of arguments that ultimately culminate in a handful of very, very powerful points that are really complicated, and I'm going to overly simplify, and I apologize. But um, one of his big pushes is this idea of a counteractualization the fact that we sort of as a subject or the ego or um, where we sit and we play, he calls us the phantasm, we sit within that, have the ability to sort of play with how meaning works and are able to break it down in a unique way. We can live in the heights, as he calls them, within ideas. We can live within the bodies, as the schizo or Nietzsche does. But uh, there is a Zen thing in the middle where we're able to sit and observe the bodies, understand the heights and the ideals, the ideals, and shift how the meaning works. This to me is where he's making the play here and where AO makes the shift, where it's, look, capitalism's doing this, but it's doing it within representation. It's not, it's, it's deterritorializing, but it's also immediately re-territorializing. This is the other part. It's not just deterritorializing and letting people be free to do whatever they're doing. Immediately upon losing your job because a factory closed or uh, Tesla came in and, or Walmart came in and they had to close all the little you know, stores in your town, capitalism doesn't just let you be. Suddenly you are now uh, indigent or you need, you need a job. Uh, around private property, we immediately re-territorialize you as a wage slave, effectively. You once were a business owner, uh, maybe had your own place, Walmart ran you out. You've been deterritorialized, then immediately re-territorialized in relation to both the generalized axiomatic of the family, but also private property. The deterritorialization of the subject or the deterritorialization uh, that he's referring to uh, sort of as part of that permanent revolution and within schizoanalysis is is not a re-territorialization. He doesn't say, oh, good, you find, as the paragraph ends, he doesn't go, uh, you don't find a new island, happy day. In fact, I think he literally makes a comment sort of laughing about that. Um, one second. Um, uh, here, 
that is what the completion of the process is. Not a promised and a pre-existing land, but a world created in the process of its tendency. It's coming undone, it's deterritorialization. It's not a re-territorialization that gives you the place, but it is the deterritorialization itself that gives you a land that in the process of itself is the thing that you're going to find another one. And you just by being there, it's not that it's ever fully defined. And that's becoming, that's becoming then. That's becoming. Correct. Huh? Correct. Yes. Oh, I get it. Yes. So capitalism uh, fucks the process up by basically re-territorializing us in relation to, to personal private property, uh, plus a whole shitload of representations and axiomatics that we kind of are built with. We need to work within ourselves. And I, I do believe it is that, uh, when I say ourselves, I do mean the decentered subject, but we need to make efforts to just a general deterritorialization as we move. And by being so and being in the point of being, uh, that, that, that shifts us. And immediately we become just different. And... Yeah, they, they they would never say you'd never say that someone who's you know achieved that level uh, would ever be oh they're in a specific place they can't get out of they've been reterritorialized it's like no there's a, like they're going like they're doing they're they're just going and they're allowed to. Okay, this is great, Brooks. Thank you. This is really good. Um, I'll leave space for someone else, but I do have a, a question later down the line. Excellent. Um, I want to get to Tiernan, who typed so very much. Um. I might be naive of accelerationism, but I feel they often forget deterritorialization is multiple and spatiotemporal, since capitalism necessarily deterritorializes and reterritorializes. What's imperative is provoking the specific deterritorialization, which are politically advantageous. Two examples non binary was a deterritorialization of gender determination. What's getting axiomatized by capital currently, it's still a deterritorialization that is politically advantageous. It produces new subjectivities that open up new possibilities. On the other hand, the rise of multinational corporation is a movement of deterritorialization. NAFTA is a government reterritorialization of this. Did Tiernan is continuing what I was a great point. It's it's the point. It's it's about the deterritorialization, not the re. It's 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 spending time there and just allowing that to con that that process of becoming to be the land that is created in the process of itself. The reterritorialization that happens, especially due to capital um, and representation, is uh, the problem. So it's kind of. Um, I think at one point they said uh, one hand deterritorializes, the other reterritorializes. They then go on to say, by the way, it doesn't have to be that way a little bit. And so it gets a little confusing. That's how I interpret that anyway. I'm open uh, to anyone wanting to respond, by the way. But uh, good point, Jordan. Uh, so, sorry, JK, a little louder. Yeah, I have a question about Lacan. When he talks about Lacan, is that... Um, is he saying that Lacan is distinct from the Freudian psychoanalysis because he's created a, created a new structure that um, that does not rely on the Oedipal image of um, and but the um, but there is a there is a um, a stage of where there is castration and there is the lack right right so so there is that those elements but is he Saying that Lacan uh, is um, is free from this kind of um, um, you know um, uh, representation. Um, I, I think the the phrasing he particularly uses is that um, Lacan believes in the in the right to nonsense, 
I think is the phrase um, he uses. Um, and the, the absence of a link, uh, here it is. Uh, you will not have reached the ultimate and irreducible terms of the unconscious so long as you find or restore a link between two elements. And this is sort of uh, this practical rule laid down by Leclerc following Lacan. The, this thing that he's playing with, I think he, again, he, it's their overall critique. It's like, yeah, here's the good stuff, but you just didn't go far enough. Uh, you blew up the four pylons and the statue in place landed right where it was. You did some damage, but it didn't change anything because ultimately again, uh, the, uh, the demand of signifiers and master signifiers and all sorts of things goes very much against, uh, a lot of the rest of what they say. But again, they're not like throwing out the baby with the bathwater with any of these people. They, they very much want to take pieces from this and pieces of that. And it's why I say that they're not like, they're not pro-capitalist at all. They're not accelerationist in the Landian sense, but it's uh, not a, everything sucks, burn it all down. It's a, hey, there's, there's things to learn from all of this. And just as with the schizophrenic that they use as a, a tool for us to begin to understand how the unconscious operates, utilizing capitalism uh, and capital as a way to understand how the social operates uh, is not a wild stretch. Yeah, and I think, um, well, first of all, I just plugged in a new microphone, so let me know if the volume's way off. But um, It's way better. You sound way better. Yeah, you sound really yeah. good. Um, Yeti Blue, thank you. Um, but yeah, so I think, yeah, we can take all the discussion of deterritorialization we were just having to uh, help us understand this political point because um, I think, like, I mean, there's a lot of ways to look at deterritorialization, but one of the common threads through it all for me is that it's a it's a form of movement through sort of uh, creative destruction. And so the fact that there is really a destructive element in deterritorialization, which I think for them is basically all movement and change, means you do have to be very cautious. And that's why, you know, you don't want to deterritorialize too fast. You don't want to destroy, destroy too much too fast. Uh, yeah, they, they, they even say the line, I think, is um, because we're, we're talking mostly here about the destructive tasks. We haven't gotten to the, the positive tasks of schizoanalysis. I'm going to avoid talking about them heavily here because it, it's going to cost a million things. But the, I think they open by saying quite cleanly, uh, you need to be uh, swift but careful, I think is how they phrase it, where you do have to dive right in and you've got to immediately sort of nip it in the bud, but you can't just do it recklessly. It's got to be very carefully done. A lot of this, uh, again, to go to logic of sense and the Deleuze's use of counteractualizations feels very on point. I don't know if anyone from our logic of sense group would agree or disagree, but uh, there's a lot of uh, sort of playing with that, that they're very much, it feels like Deleuze is very much going out here for the most part. So it's, it's thoughtful, but you got to hit someone quick. Yeah, I'll, I'll find that and I'll send it. But yeah, they, they, they make that comment at some point, I think twice, actually. Uh, Kedis says, Anti-Oedipus criticizes uh, psychoanalysis for making the subject submissive by analyzing it in terms of the Oedipal Triangle. Of course, in a sense, this is the aim of psychoanalysis. What would the aim of schizoanalysis be? Can we say that there is a practical side for the application? What would the most practical part of it be? A lot of that is going to be getting into the next two. I would say for this part and this this early section, the 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 destructive task, as they call it, 
Um, it is to move away from representational thinking and determinant thinking and instead uh, break down why a person, uh, why their representations work as they do and how they operate rather than letting them sit there and, you know, beginning to pretend that we have a, hmm, I don't know if that makes sense, Kittis. Um the, the positive tasks are more difficult and uh, we will be doing another one here. So I'll, I'll refer back to you. I'll ping you when we start to answer that question at some point. I have an, uh, I have another thing. Of course you do. Uh, a little bit uh, building on what we were talking about earlier. Um, so you were saying uh, a bit like how in capitalism, uh, after deterritorialization, you immediately get re-territorialized and you, and you give an example of, I don't know, uh, someone who was um, uh, doing some manual labor that gets, um, you know, industrialized and then they they don't, you know, they sort of get forced to find another meaning within society. So that means they have to get a job um, at a factory, for example. Mm. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry, Doug. I'll turn. I'll turn up. I'll turn up. Um, but my question was, in a way, uh, so Keynes, uh, for example, famous economist, um, but also uh, someone like uh, um, uh, Oscar Wilde, um, but maybe Keynes is a better example. Talked about this dream of capitalism, where once these things get deterritorialized, people will become free, right? Like mm -hmm. people could 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 focus on. Um, on, for example, self-cultivation is, is one of the, the examples given of, of what people could do uh, after basically uh, having been made obsolete by in, in industrialization. Um, and I do think there's this is such a beautiful image of, of, of when you're obsolete, you, you are sort of ultimately free or something. But um, it's it often regarded as, uh, like the, the uh, Keynes is often regarded as, as being very naive um, uh, on on that part, and I just wonder how um, how basically the Les Gotari's um, proposal for deterritorialization um, differs from um, how Keynes posed it as like saying, "Hey, if you don't need to work the fields anymore, you can just like you know hang out, relax, make art." Um, I think I would say um, the difference would be in that first part of it. Uh, if you don't need to work the fields anymore, you can relax, make art. And I think there's a, there's a tweet I saw a little bit ago that I think encapsulates a little bit of my feeling towards it, which is um, if it turns out that someone wants to just be born and then do random shit until the day they die because they like it, I'm okay with that. That, I think, puts us in a different place than Keynes, which is this this... I think fairly naive belief that we can get to a point in capital that, um, uh, Oh, everything's taken care of. And we certainly aren't going to continue to exploit labor when the reality is anyone who's not, anyone who's not blind knows that labor is the only thing that allows us to drive excess profit. Um, and D and G are very crisp about that too. Uh, the, Challenge being that we will always find a way to shit on all of the working class and put them in a place. So it's it's that's where the na that naivete comes. I think for this, we're talking about very much like people do their thing naturally. Where where do they connect? How do they how do they connect with things? What do they do? And how do they play with it? 
instead of saying, well, if we can, as a society, if we can survive it and, and we can keep our city squares clean and we can have no crime and all of us can have a, a decent living now by decent living, we all have different, like that's the Keynes vision. Uh, puts us in a place of, again, I would say a yoke and a, it's a carrot at the end of a stick, a very long fucking stick um, that uh, is where the naivete comes. This is much more just stepping aside of that and saying, let people live. If that makes sense, Misha. Yeah, 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 it does. Um, it's just that, I mean, um, yeah, in a way we have reached sort of that, the 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 material conditions for what Keynes was 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 hoping for. Oh, we have, but it, but at the same time, you know, Doug says every possible choice we could want would be available to a person with enough capital. I I don't know if I'd even agree with that. I I would say uh, the eunuch that Deleuze and Guattari discuss when they talk about capital, the capitalist eunuch who's uh, ultimately just stuck in between the flows of capital and doesn't have the freedom to do things. His desires are manufactured much, much harder. Oh, you're saying it's Keynes' desire. Yes, that's the, their belief is that like, oh, uh, uh, Jeff Bezos is free. I would disagree with that. I think he controls a great deal and he's more free than fucking most people for sure. But, you know, wealthy people are stuck in their position too. Capitalism manufactures everyone. This isn't a, you know, he's in a position where he's controlling people and yes, he's a dick and fuck that guy. But um, what is he going to do? Like he's, been manufactured by it and everything he does is deterritorialized and re-territorialized the 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 necessity of everything we do and the play we're making as people and what we decide to do isn't it's not like jeff bezos wakes up and his desiring machines work completely freely like he lives in a place of even i would suggest harder representation joe biden uh, the most powerful person in theory in theory in the world uh, lives within the worst kind of representational prison that there is. If you've ever watched him, he, I, I think he says some things he believes get them, and he just, cause he gets fucked. Like he's, he's an idiot, but what are you going to do? He's got to keep the thing in the machine going. Like he's got to keep going and everyone's got to keep the thing going. That's, that's the terrifying part. Uh, if there is a great film that gets this across Snowpiercer, I think the one side people don't really get of it um, is that it's about how all of us are on this train on a track that is being, you know, supported by children who are being murdered and we're all just going in one direction and none of us stop it because we're all scared that we would die. And that I think is not a terrible allegory for generally how people feel within all of this. Uh, we, if we stop it, what are we going to do? Like, are you, what do we do tomorrow? Like everything's fucked. And that, that's the fear. And that's the thing that keeps them moving. It keeps us going. It keeps capital flowing. We're, it's very good at it. The rep way representation plays into all of that. And that alienation that, that they discuss in here it keeps us all going. And so, yeah, that's why that's, I, I tend to, uh, with the Keynes thing or any of it, I tend to always just sort of, I, I, I don't believe anyone in capital can be free, and that includes the wealthy. That's why the U.S. should invade Ukraine instead of Russia, to be faster. 
<laughs> we should accelerate. We should join forces with Russia to invade the Ukraine. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's all of it is just sort of this weird play of like, we do have to be careful how we mean freedom, Jack, but I'm more speaking just general colloquialism. But I would even say the wealthy, like when they're more free, they have more choices, they have more options. Their desiring machines are not operating them. They're stuck within representation. To me, representation is a prison. That's how I interpret it. Desiring machines are, uh, and their natural emergent behaviors and mind are freedom. That's how I, I view it. Feel free, Jack, jump in. Come on. You haven't talked. Jump in. Jumping on the subject of freedom, I feel like Patrick Swayze in Roadhouse. Roadhouse? Uh, yeah, yeah, you know that scene where the nurse is fixing him up from his, his stab wound, balancing. It's like, oh, I see you studied philosophy. He's like, yeah, yeah, back in college, I, I majored and I got a bachelor's. She's like, what'd you focus on? Oh, you know, nothing serious, just the meaning of life and that shit. <laughs> One of my favorite scenes in the movie. That's the only good scene, but yeah, I, I guess like um, to risk being Patrick Swayze than jumping in on the on freedom, I suppose. Uh, I would say you got to be very careful how you place freedom because, especially in the U.S., you know, we usually think of freedom in terms of freedom from things. This idea of like an unfettered um, liberation to something unconditioned right, an unconditioned freedom. Um, and I don't know that that's the kind of freedom to losing water you have in mind. I can agree with that. It's also not the freedom as I intended it either. Um, because it, again, it's a, it's the libertarian, not, it's not a positive freedom, uh, a freedom to actively do whatever, but instead of no one's stopping me because I have so much power kind of mentality but it does it doesn't involve the the implied restrictions on any sort of behavior that come with that. There's a lot of challenges there. It's fair, it's fair. It's fair. Yeah, how about how about the freedom to be just present? Right? Yeah, instead of being, yeah. Uh, yeah, instead of being controlled by these representations, right? The way you're always, you know, driven by uh, some some goal or right in the future. Yeah, it's a, there's a, a great line I love, uh, it's a exist, Existential Comics. It's a, I bought it as a shirt for my son when he was a baby. Uh, it's a, an adult man talking to a little girl and he goes, um, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she goes, I want to be an honest and good caring person. He says, no, no, no. How do you want to sell your labor? <laughs> and I think that's a, it feels like the, the same kind of point, the demand that, you become useful. Uh, and I, I go with the, uh, old, old, old story of the Taoist sage walking down the street. Uh, ben, I think would be proud that I'm bringing up in this reading, but uh, Taoist sage walking down the street with a student who sees a tree that's gnarled and awful. And he goes, look at that ugly tree. And he goes, yes, but that tree, it's been there for my entire life. Probably will be there for yours. He's like, yes, but it's gnarled and ugly. He goes, that's the reason it hasn't been cut down it's it's the ability to be useless is uh, something we underestimate very much 
Sorry, Jack. Yeah, go I, ahead. I always get tricked in making sense. It's fucking lame. I thought I was the one with the bad jokes. <laughs> uh, no, I appreciated all those. That made me chuckle. Um, no, I guess continue on the point of freedom, though. I mean, I mean, this is always a challenge with like post-structuralist ethics because coming out of existentialism and even Marxism, for that matter, right? We're looking for this, um, the subject, the transcendence of the ego, right? The stemming of the meaningful subject and the meaning of life in that manner, um, right? And now I've gone full Patrick Swayze. Um, but this is, I think, part of the challenge that the post-structuralists leave us. Um, and certainly the challenge of the ethics in anti-Oedipus, right, is if if we are caught in the tension of the I believe versus the production, right, kind of where they started in the beginning of the section, the tension of the representation of the unconscious, the representation of production as I believe, um, I I am, I think, whatever you like, uh, the, rep the pre-conscious versus the unconscious process of production, then that would seem to me to be, and this is kind of a brick alert point, but that would seem to me to be the conditions of any freedom, right? I think this is why they go to Proust and um, Chaplin, and they, they do this so interestingly, right? Because they focus on, it's not just Proust, it's Proust's narrator. Right, this is kind of experimentality of those pieces. It's not simply Chaplin; it's Chaplin in this movie, since I don't believe the character has a name. Um, but there's something about what they're doing, right, to representation as much as in the creation of a line of um, escape or a line of flight, that I think does get at the um, the ethical task, right? That that is where any um, sense of freedom um, is made possible and makes different things possible. That's why I think there can be this destructive task um, and these positive tasks. Very much agree with that. Uh, one sec, Doug. I want to get Kedis's question in, then we can do it. Uh, Kedis asks, can we say that schizoanalysis is a method of emancipation for the political subject? How much is it philosophical, psychological, scientific, religious, if it is at all? Um, uh, Doug, I'm, I know Doug said uh, he's got a line there. I think is it Doug? You said you got a note, um, which we can, if you want to jump in, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So first of all, I thought that was a really good question. It's kind of uh, an obvious one to ask on its face, but I think if you like look at it, it's actually a pretty deep one. Um, like, yeah. So first, just is this emancipation? Is that an actual end that they are putting in? And I think they are. I think that's you know, especially as we read the last two sections, that will become pretty evident. Um, and is it a method of emancipation? I think that is a, a deep question because, you know, I mean, it gets at the play between means and ends. And schizoanalysis certainly seems to be a means of a sort. Uh, but the end or the limit that's trying to be surpassed is kind of, they're trying to tr package it in there somehow, right? Have it be kind of just an unconscious investment at the start that will 
play out with just a flick of the finger. And um, so I don't have a, you know, a definitive answer except to say that I think it is a tricky question that requires thinking about the, the complication of all those issues. Very much. I, w I would, I think the very easy answer, and there's a lot of caveats, but they're not worth really going into would be to just say yes. And how much is it any of those things? It's all of those things. It's a, it's a complete and total uh, shifting of how representation, myth, legend, stories, familial relations, social relations, beliefs, all of those things. Um, how, how our delusion, uh, our collective, uh, how these things work together and, and the destruction of them. I would say yes. I, there's caveats to a lot of that. So don't just go quoting me, but yeah, I think generally yes. I suppose to try and get at the question and, and both to question the question and work toward an answer. You know, again, it's, it's this question of like, how are we understanding freedom or emancipation? Um, at least for me, that's where certainly that's where i think things were coming off sartre's heels right that's even part of the big thing of like existentialism as humanism is right is creating a new is arguing existentialism as a condition of freedom right um and you can kind of see how that it's certainly not dng's point but those concerns um have some parallel in the projects even though they're very different how they're built out but you know the question of the conditions of freedom and what can freedom condition i would say in that sense right the political subjects always a product and particularly right at the conjunct and then there's the question of the territory right or the zone um between the second and third syntheses so I, I would say this is where the deterritorialization comes in. In that sense, I don't know that it's about the subject unless we qualify it as the unconscious, because in this sense, the deterritorialization is a shifting of what is upon the socius and thereby um, a falling back on production. That is itself a shift, right? So new zones, new subjectivities, um, and to qualify the new here, the, the novelty of it, part of what makes it new is, um, right, there's a way of understanding the socius as producing difference and all that. But there's something going on with the revolutionary investment that in shifting production, right, some of the things it does is it, it shifts the zones of the subject, right, where it will come to take place. And it's going to shift... Um, and this is kind of where they do that subject subjugated group thing. It's going to shift um, the actual collectivity of it all, more so that like first synthesis. So in that sense, like it's not just the nuance of it being something new, um, or in that sense something new and therefore free. I, I think it's getting at this point at which um, that which is produced following this line of escape is kind of like, um, and here, since we're in the destructive task, we're going to see it again, like Proust narrator and Chaplin. They're destroying representations, but they're opening up 
all these new different ways in which capacities and distributions can take place and indeed will take place by way of this um, this investment that's been created um, even though you know it's not to say that reactionary investments won't follow but it's to say that the index is at least being modified yeah hello please please uh, please hello case if you can hear me right i would like to jump in uh, just uh, for some remark um i um in the question i think um when i ask is a uh, um uh, uh, analysis and emancipatory uh, means towards emancipating the subject, I mean in the most uh, political sense. Uh, it, um, my second question, uh, I think, is somehow related uh, to the first one. I, I, I don't want to jump in into the details uh, uh, of uh, the relation with uh, psychoanalysis, but I wanted to uh, grip on the fundamentals uh, of the relation between schizoanalysis and psychoanalysis. Uh, uh, from my point of view, uh, which I'm more familiar with psychoanalysis than schizoanalysis, uh, just more familiar, I mean, uh, uh, psychoanalysis uh, tries to work with a subject uh, in uh, which in the case of psychoanalysis it is an uh, analyzed subject uh, is the subject of a single person of a single individual and uh, it uh, works with the subject uh, to uh, give him uh, the um, uh, the possibilities uh, to work with uh, what it lacks and uh, i'm uh, using the word luck uh, because uh, luck is um, for many psychoanalysis uh, for many psychoanalysts is uh, the crucial uh, point of the desire and this is a point where uh, deleuze and Gattari uh, criticize psychoanalysis because they see desire not as uh, an uh, uh, object caused by the luck, but they see it in a positive way. They see desire as a production in some sense. I, I'm not uh, sure if I'm right here, but uh, I, I'm going to talk this out because I, I want to explain uh, about the question. And uh, in psychoanalysis, uh, people uh, go there to get better uh, with, uh, what, with what they're dealing. I mean, uh, they go there to get better with their problems, with what they fundamentally lack. Uh, and this is only the part of psychoanalysis. And uh, from what we read in this chapter, because I mostly was part of uh, this uh, finished chapter, uh, I saw that uh, schizoanalysis uh, doesn't focus on uh, what the subject lacks. It uh, focuses um, 
I, I, I don't know if it focuses, but it goes beyond the lack of the subject. It sees uh, the desire as uh, something uh, produced. And uh, there where the psychoanalytic subject is um, somehow uh, 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 not. Um, I would say this, that uh, for the subject uh, which uh, schizoanalysis is talking, the psychoanalytic practice would make the subject weak. That is why I am asking about what kind or what type of subject schizoanalysis is talking about, because I don't think it is a psychoanalytic subject. I mean, nobody goes in schizoanalysis to deal with his personal problems and to deal with his with what he is fundamentally lacking. And uh, so I go on to the second question, because I know that, from what I was saying till now, I know that uh, uh, psychoanalysis, uh, uh, no, I know that uh, schizoanalysis doesn't deal with psycho, uh, psychoanalytic subjects, uh, but so I raised the second question, uh, does it deal with political subjects. And if it deals with political subjects, it is a means of, uh, uh, um, it, it, it is a means to emancipate a subject. I, I didn't mean uh, anything special about emancipation. Emancipation for the subject, uh, in my question, means only that the subject we're talking about is political. Well, uh, if it is, yeah, yeah. To, to respond there, I mean, using emancipation does bring in this language, of, and that's okay. I'm, I'm not saying there is no freedom. I'm saying we have to be careful about how we're understanding freedom. Um, and it's certainly, I, I would agree there is a political context. So insofar as the freedom extends in that political context, you know, that becomes important there too, right? At least in the U.S., I, I see this in the discourse all the time. Is you know, freedom is understood to be a freedom from something oppressive, um, whereby there's this strange turn of the screw where it's actually to be um, in a certain way oppressed by it. It's, it's very, it's a very interesting um, usage there. Um, but to get at the first part of your question in terms of the subject. That's why I say um, it's it's understanding and qualifying the subject as the unconscious because to follow I think this aspect of the connective in terms of things um, joining and disjoining right connecting and breaking flows and machines I would say that that is going to be your subject and that the way the syntheses construct that. Um, that thing, right? There's a good technical term for you, that thing. That is the subject, and I believe that's how they kick off the section even, uh, pointing that out. Whereas, kind of like you're saying in psychoanalysis, 
the traditional move is to take um, the person, and it's usually by way of the ego, if, if we keep this in psychoanalytical language, taking the ego to kind of access some of the, the unconscious and working with it in that manner in terms of the personal. At, at some level, this actually, since Dingo or Brenton you've joined, this is actually getting at the difference between the psychotic and the, the neurotic, I think, is that, um, in a more classical sense. But yeah, to answer your question, Kiddus, I would say it's the unconscious as subject versus the unconscious um, in its representation that psychoanalysis usually treats it by. I would I would also say I'm 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 more hesitant to say that there is direct political like the use of political also has issues because there is and they're explicit in this there is no strictly political program for schizoanalysis uh, the it is the the political reformations that may come of it are not they it's not like a goal they don't believe in goals don't do that representational thinking I would um, I I would be hesitant also to say that it's not the psychoanalytic subject that they're talking about, not in the same sense as Lacan may refer to it. But when I, and I've used the term an, analyst and al, analysand, Guattari doesn't shy away from this language pretty regularly when he's referring to this or he's writing about it as well. Whether we call that thing or essence or whatever it is at the other end, the political subject or whatever it may be, there is ultimately underneath it the idea of how we can work with people. So people uh, who are living, breathing collectives of whatever they are, um, are able to move away from these molar aggregate representations and instead um, live a um, more vitalistic uh, emergent life. Uh, I think um, maybe... Uh the question is uh, not just uh, uh, general, but it's somehow fundamental. Uh, we may change our minds during the reading of this book uh, anytime, and uh, mm -hmm. somehow asking such questions, uh, answering some such questions, is um, measuring uh, what we know about this. Uh, uh, from uh, I, I will uh, tell you something from my experience being in such a short time uh, with uh, this group uh, for uh, this section we are reviewing uh, right now. Uh, when I read uh, the pages, it seems to me because uh, I, le I read um, uh, What is Philosophy from Deleuze Guattari, but uh, uh, I, I didn't read uh, anything, I think, anything else, I think, and this was somehow uh, a reintroduction to me to Deleuze Guattari. And uh, when I read the pages, um, I understand something different from uh, what I uh, uh, from what I hear you uh, discussing with uh, one another. And uh, uh, from my perspective, uh, uh, I, I see that um, uh, you're talking about, as a group I mean, 
uh, you're talking about a, a structure which maybe you uh, developed uh, while reading and uh, from what i understand from what uh, the, from the words you use i see that uh, i understand that uh schizoanalysis or uh, the content of this uh, uh, critical book is uh, sometimes scientific uh, sometimes philosophical it deals with the, sometimes uh, with the critique in psychoanalysis uh, sometimes i get the feeling it kind of uh, deals with uh, ideological issues uh, i wrote uh, just for a contrast, uh, religious, but I don't think they're religious. Uh, but uh, understanding how much each uh, of these aspects is part of uh, anti-Oedipus is uh, somehow uh, understanding uh, the text in general. And uh, I know we need uh, to read it uh, uh, till the end to understand it, but uh, somehow these questions, or this question maybe, is uh, what uh, uh, repeats itself, uh, for, for me I mean, uh, every time or many times uh, uh, when we discuss about the book, and uh, when I uh, turn to the text, uh, I don't see much of what uh, we usually say in our discussions. Uh, I don't know if it's a matter of uh, uh, they use many new concepts, and uh, you have to to understand but from the examples you give I think uh, uh, most views are uh, clear you're coming through like super, it's, it's, you're starting to turn into a robot you're starting to turn into a robot I can't really hear you can there's a connection thing, I think. All right, are you able to hear us okay? Uh, I have a poor connection. Um, to, to, to say um, uh, sort I, of what I, I, I was getting there. I have um, a poor connection. Uh, uh, when, do I? Yeah. Uh, so. Um, uh, do, you, do you hear me now? Yes. Uh, just uh, to uh, close uh, the uh, sentence, uh, from what you, uh, even if uh, the question repeats itself during the course of the reading, it's, uh, it's somehow uh, the time necessary to create the concept. That's why this, questions, uh, th this question uh, brings itself up in, in my case. Uh, your uh, explanations and your discussions and the examples you give, I think, uh, explain and
was the relation? Oh, well, there you Rick, are. You, you were about to say the most you important part of the sentence. You were getting to the end. I can't tell if it's a critique that we are using explanations that aren't directly from the book or if it's helping. I. Am I alone in that? I think uh, I think they're helping me at least. It, it it's hard to tell it, if it. I, I hope we're helping. That's a critique. It was. Mm -hmm. I, I hope it's helpful. It's it genuinely one of the things. Uh, and Doug will say, from my perspective, hearing more and different readings is only a plus. A hundred percent, like beyond helpful. It's it's incredibly important. It's why I like. Uh, 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 various videos that I don't necessarily a hundred percent get or agree with, but then I go back and I reread why I believed what I did. And I go, Oh, Oh, there's actually a point in this kind of tends to be the thing. So much of what you'll hear me say today, if you want, you can go back, you can literally hear our recapitulation of 4.3 about a year. And I want to say four months ago now, um, Jesus Christ, really? Yep. You're in four months ago. Jesus. Um, and it is uh, not this one. And uh, come back in a year and four months when we do AO again and we get to this point. And it'll probably change again. There's a, a beauty to a lot of uh, Deleuze's works, I believe, that are that lend themselves, Guattari too, to uh, uh, multiple readings and a lot of understanding. So I, I always appreciate anyone saying, oh no, what about this or disagreeing? Because like, I, I have my take, but it's, it's one that has evolved thanks to mostly actually people on the server, uh, to be frank, so. Yeah, I, I hope our interpretation generally helps because <coughs> um, it is a lot of this shit is really complicated, uh, uh, needlessly almost. It makes the distinction between, you know, like uh, schizoanalysis and, and uh, psychoanalysis. And he uses the word artificial to describe uh, some of the... Um, representations that are you know in psychoanalysis right mm -hmm. and so that's what I'm, i that's what i meant by you know maybe kind of like i described psychoanalysis as, as sort of a um, a natural product or a, um, a a desiring production um but would would that uh, describe this notion of emancipation when the uh, schizoanalysis Schizoid is is uh, is um, you know naturally desiring production uh, and as an individual and 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 in, uh, in terms of the socius. Um, so I'm I'm really quick going to say because I'm sure Jack is going to want to jump in here. I don't have a disagreement with using the term natural as I know you're using it because we just did a reading of logic of sense and literally talked about what this means and and the essence of this. Um, if there is an the problem with the word, and I think, I don't want to put words in Jack's mouth, but it's the one edge, is that very often people, when they say natural, they mean the way it ought to be, like kind of thing. There's like an edge to it of like, look, it's only natural that someone does blah, blah, blah. And that's not, that's a, that's a appeal to good and common sense. I don't, I don't think you're using it in that way, but the, the word itself has like weird baggage underneath it. Is that close, Jack? Well, I mean, there's the logic of sense usage, and then there's... It's how they start off this section, right? Social production, desiring production, right? Or pro, uh, processes of production. So right there, anything that would be qualified as natural 
has to be qualified under the conditions of, uh, you know, the three syntheses, right? Or at least the socius and the BWL. So as long as we're uh, using the word in that that way, I'm okay with it. The thing I'm concerned about is if we say natural, we're moving toward something unconditioned, right? Something that's not adulterated. And that's where I'm more concerned is that we're, you know, we're suggesting that there's some sort of uh, something unencumbered, something um, somehow like uh, uh, unadulterated, pure. I'm I'm hesitant because it to me I don't that 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 was almost a presumption of like a platonic ideal of the the natural thing. I to me, uh, natural just means uh, organically uh, emergent uh, of of its own existence, uh, sort of thing. Uh, when I use the term, I very much, I get, like I said, there's, there's weird word. It's, it's a weird word because it has a lot of connotations around a lot of those things. Well, could you describe, uh, the, uh, schizo, um, as being, um, in a state of becoming as opposed to, you know, um, as opposed to, um, you know, being of, uh, artificial representations. Well, I mean, becoming artificial. Yeah, he does use the word artificial. Right, and they're you know they're moving toward like, for instance, the the simulacra, right? The, the push to the simulacra pushes the simulacra to a point where they see speaking artificial images to become indices of the new world, right? So again, to like a, a deterritorialization where the, you know, the conjunct. Um, such an interesting idea about simulation going on there. Um, but, but anyways, um, I lost my train of thought. So the point about becoming, right? That was the question, I think. It, it For me, it's the same thing with the natural. Is any becoming, and this is the point about the freedom uh, in, in the same vein, the social production of a becoming and the desiring production of a becoming um, have to be taken hand in hand. So like this is where the, the schizophrenic and like the body without organs, there's the aspect of the socius that has its limit of capitalism. And so far as we're talking about the socius as capital. And I do think there's becomings there, interestingly enough, because we have decoding and deterritorialization. We have all these different things being broken down. They use McLuhan and they talk about electricity, for instance, right? And they qualify that with the Ashmelv. There it is. Okay. Thank you. They qualify that with mathematics. (laughs) But it's never, see, the memory remains for all you Metallica fans. Uh, But yeah, the becoming is contingent there, just like they have to qualify that with the BWO, the creation of the line of escape, that has an effect on this, uh, this limit that we're talking about. And that, to me, is a, it's almost like the, the Artaud line about the new revelations of being, right? But there's something different about the being there that I think we're, we're, we do well to dwell on this difference of the, I mean, it's basically the difference of conditions and um, like the difference of uh, the plane, if you like, the socius versus the BWL. But there's something to be considered there in terms of the becomings that each opens up. And the way that they, that's the interesting thing about the escape, right? The way the tension can be released into different becomings. 
That's my perspective on it. I think one of the um, uh, questions that posed by Ed Kitas was uh, that uh, psychoanalysis, um, you know, deals with um, uh, the problem of desire, right? And uh, but uh, you know, and he's. I think he was asking, you know, whether that was a more a kind of like a, you know, a reasonable kind of. Um, you know, way to understand the subject, you know, uh, having to do with desire and uh, as opposed to the schizoid, schizoid analysis. They're also, you know, uh, but the, supposedly the schizoid analysis has no problem with uh, desire and production and social production, right? Because it's, you know, um, and it's the um, psychoanalytic subject that has this problem with desire, right? Yeah, I think that's correct, right? They open up this section by saying, um, they, they basically say, right, psychoanalysis makes it a problem of the I believe. So this is the point about understanding the representation of what it does, right? Um, it comes specifically, to desire. Just real quick, specifically beliefs that are not produced. Like, it, I just want to say, like, it's it's that it is an unconscious that doesn't believe, doesn't produce, but does believe. There's a very specific line that's a break there because I don't want to get into why, like I can get into why, but like it's a, it's a particular thing. Sorry, Jack, go ahead. Oh, no problem. I'm, I'm about to, cause I know you want to respond to Kettis there. So I'll turn it over to you shortly, but yeah, just to finish the thought, I mean, that's part of what psychoanalysis is doing too, is it's, it's an application of the representation, right? One that's, um, is contingent on social production. Yeah, that's kind of the interesting thing about it. But yeah, I mean, it, it, to your point, it's it, it's the difference in working with desire in the way that schizoanalysis does, which is going to be the three syntheses, right? And the, the vitalism, the machinism, the way that all comes together to give you what I guess we can term an assemblage, because otherwise we don't really have a nice catch-all um, versus the the representation of the unconscious in terms of the I believe, right? Which again, invokes, you know, like an ego. So it kind of puts it in an aspect of the neurotic. But yeah, go ahead, Brooks. I think Kedis had a Yeah, uh, Kedis, as well. How should one read Anti-Oedipus as a critique on capitalism? Um, so I, I'll, I'll do my best because this is a, a complex answer. Um, I, I think it is not just a critique on capitalism. It is a critique on representation. Capitalism and schizophrenia uh, happen to be two lenses that they're utilizing to look at how production works at the molecular and the molar. Um, the way that production works is very interesting. Uh, if I, my wife uh, hasn't, we haven't had my wife's, my daughter's due Monday. Um, uh, by the way, I probably won't be doing a reading next Monday. Um, so my, my, my wife needs the house. I, I hire a bunch of people to clean my house and my wife comes back and I'm like, look, I cleaned the house and I take credit for that. It's this really strange thing I've done. I've usurped other people's production for myself. We would call me a fraud, but capitalism does this really interesting thing where we pretend and we act as if capital dollars is actually the thing that produces. Watch Fox News, watch CNBC, talk about job creators, talk about how capital itself actually is what creates production rather than the other way around. And this is ultimately Marx's critique of it, that 
actually production produces capital. How silly that you would think this thing that does nothing, this abstract thing, but it, but it does. And instead of throwing everything out, we should analyze why, because through that lens, we can also look at schizophrenia because you and I and all of us do also this really weird thing where I take credit. My ego takes credit for all the desires and choices and things that Brooks has done in his silly life. Good, bad, whatever it may be. Uh, anxiety filled because I did terrible things. Uh, proud of myself bragging because I did good things or whatever it may be. I pretend I exist. I take credit for all the production that ultimately made me and produced me, even though I came after. Capital does the same thing. This critique isn't necessarily on capitalism. It's a critique of the nature of desiring production. And they say it very clearly here. Ultimately, everything, all production at once is desiring and social production. It is not just capitalism that they're going after. They're specifically going after the way that production is co-opted by quasi-causes, by the thing they produce. And in the social world, that's capital and representation, to be frank. And in the desiring production world, it's also representation. And so this large-scale critique of how capital by taking its place and utilizing pieces of socii, socius that came before it, uh, throwing a piece away here, another piece here, other contingent events like the creation of the Erstadt, the, the nature of the landed gentry, uh, all of these things, it, it changed how our genuine desires were molded in a social setting and everything then got, gets done through the representation of capital. And that very particular thing that then takes credit for all the production I do, but then I take credit for all the production that I do on the desiring machines are sitting ultimately at the base of it all. The labor at the bottom of the production, very, very frustrated that I take credit for everything. This is the overall critique, uh, capitalism being the uh, social and uh, schizophrenia being the uh, molecular. If anyone disagrees, that's that's genuinely, I think, a, a decent answer to that. Um, so feel free to disagree. Uh, but that's, I think, how I would put it. Again, it's um, you shouldn't read Marx saying that capitalism is pure evil and it's, it's the whole thing sucks. It's it's a machine. There's parts of all of these things we can learn from. We can learn from a schizophrenic. Don't go be a fucking schizophrenic. Don't go be a capitalist. But take a look at it and go. Wait, how does this work? How are these pieces? How are what 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 are the machines that make this work? In the same way that we should be checking what machines make us work. What produced us? What are the things? Not the representations that we're ascribing to. That I'm a white middle class man from middle America, but instead a gigantic play towards. What are the machines that have done that and the representations foisted on me? The same to a schizophrenic. They're, what is the thing that allows them that production or, and produces them? What is the thing that makes capital? And let's break them apart and maybe we can rearrange a few pieces. Maybe we can see how things really work by really deconstructing them properly with desiring machines at the bottom. But what is the uh, origin of uh, capital? Capitalism is it? Does this go back to um, this uh, Erstad and the Despot? 
I mean, there, specifically the, the moment capital became a thing, cause it's always haunted. As they say, it's always haunted. Uh, capital became a thing very particularly with printed money and the written word, the, the transition of humanity from, uh, you know, once upon a time we would maybe have art or anything like that, but we ended up with the written word at some point, which changed rather than us, uh, seeing a symbol, uh, and thinking of water. We now think of the word water when I say the word water, which means we're now a step removed and this sort of representational nature shifts. The big change of course, being that, uh, you get paid, uh, five shillings or five pennies or $5 and that dollar, which is printed and has the mark of things on it and is written and seen is not only a representation, but a written one from on high with essentially the voice of the despot buried deeply inside of it. No longer the despot on high where I can even pretend that I do things for daddy Trump or daddy Biden or Brandon or whatever you want to call them. But the, the thing I do things for is now through capital and for capital because capital controls and it ultimately runs where my alliances are set, where my affiliative reign is set. Um, I no longer have the complex social network behind everything. Everything runs infinitely through capital. And that's the change. If, if it's one of the things I like about uh, D&G and has always pulled me to them after I finally grasped it during our first reading and someone really sat me down for like four hours and explained it. It's on recordings. It's embarrassing for me, but it probably helps someone. This is not a, uh, oh, uh, capitalism is when money. Capitalism is when rich, which is uh, the silly sort of version a lot of leftists run with. It's, look, there's a function. Capitalism very particularly utilizes private capital and capital as a public thing to assess and decode everything you're doing and to recode it as capital and value in particular ways. This is the function that makes the system what it is. It is the thing that sets it apart from any semblance of, of what we might call socialism, communism, or other things. Uh, and so when we start talking about, is it money? It's like, nah, sort of, sort of. It doesn't get the whole thing because as long as I am a slave to any semblance of representation, God, country, capital, uh, I am not free and none of us are free. There is no freedom uh, that can be said within anything like that. Instead, we need to do what we can to break all this down and we need to break away from it and instead separate ourselves from the way that our desire is manufactured through this. That's the difference. It isn't uh, ascribing to Mother Russia because Mother Russia was communist because it said money was bad at one point or another. Uh, and at the same time, it's an emancipation from uh, from uh, you know, um, you know, past drudgery and and um, you know, pop poverty, right? Um, so this uh, the notion of enslavement goes back to goes back in history, right? To um, you know, the master slave um, uh, mentality and so forth, and you know, the despot, right? Mm -hmm. Very much. So, and so it, even before that, the the eye of cruelty that they speak about in this chapter goes back as Bataille and others talked about um, the the way that roles were literally carved in in the theater of cruelty as we watched uh, you know primitive man is the term they use I hate using that but a lot of old indigenous cultures 
often, uh, once a boy or a girl was old enough, they would carve literally into their skin what their role was, scarifying them brutally in some ways, tattooing them, doing horrifying things, literally carving into the body. And they, they inscribing in the body as they put it. They don't use that term out of nowhere. Uh, what your role is. So you know what your relationship is to the Alliant and the affiliative. You know what you are meant to do. And it is not a free place to be. It is a brutal place of horrifying slavery into that specific role and everything. Or you are flatly thrown out of society. You don't have room to play. The hunter doesn't get to eat his meat. Uh, the, the, the farmer doesn't get to eat his crops. Everything is done for your place inside of it. And they are brutal about that. This is a this is the, the sort of origin of all of it. But as we start moving beyond that and we're taught words and we move, we move from this brutality being a thing that is something literally inscribed to something that is instead spoken to the theater of cruelty that we take part in fairly every day as people don't do what we quite want in society. And you end up having a screaming match with your father as you walk around your driveway saying, why should people be forced to die because they can't find work? Um, the theater of cruelty that accepts this because they're not doing their thing. They're not allowing that. It's the same line. It's just for different drives. And so this, this extends back. We're, we're not talking about a time where once upon a time we were free or some silly version of, uh, oh, it's, it's, I want to go back to the freedom of being stuck inside of a small, you know, <laughs> living literally hand to mouth, not knowing if death will appear every corner. I'd rather live in that. It's like, come on, fuck off. Let's keep going. Let's keep building. Sorry. Sorry for the ramble. It makes me nuts when people do that sort of anarcho-primitive bullshit. Um, anyway, I hope that answered JK. Like, it's, it is, this is a long, long road to get here. And this is not, again, a thing that sort of sprang up overnight. There is no, today we had capitalism, yesterday we had despotism. These are pieces here and there picked up in different ways that someone else added a thing here. Another one added a thing here, uh, financialized capitalism. Uh, I don't think actually even happened without slavery as we understand it. Uh, uh there's a wonderful book that half not told half never told about, uh, capitalism and slavery in America and the way that the financialized world exists because of the slave trade and, um, quite literally chattel human slavery is the reason that we have things like credit default swaps, which is fucked up, but an amazingly well-researched and well-written book. Um, again, this is a, this is not a new thing. Capitalism is not some random piece. These pieces come from places and they just happen to have this formation. Yeah. And that's why capitalism at a certain level is, uh, you know, very uh, consistent with democracy. And, um, you know, freedom and so forth, right? Yeah, I, it, 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 it works very well because democracy, um, as much as anyone, and I do believe in the right of people's voting, I'm not anti-democratic, but it's a thing capitalism is able to do because it controls, it's the representations that form us cause us to vote certain ways. Like capitalism doesn't mind us, generally speaking, voting for the status quo, which is generally speaking what happens. Uh, so there's a hesitance I have to say that like democracy is the, 
opposing element to that. I think there's ways of doing it, but it's a, it's a, it's definitely an interesting setup. I'm going to link, uh, in the thing it's, uh, the book specifically is, uh, titled the half has never been told slavery and the making of modern capitalism. And it is a horrifying read, uh, that it's one of those things when people say, well, capitalism is built on slavery and everyone's like, well, yeah, I know history. It's like, no, you know, like literally the financial sector in Louisiana literally defined financial capital as we know it today. It's, it's just insane. Um, but it's, yeah, they're, inter they're intertwined for sure. Um, I just have a, I know it's already late and stuff. I just have a bit of a, um, uh, yeah. So how you mentioned earlier about the, like the, to not reduce the idea of capitalism to money or to, um, uh, let's say what we, so like, let's say to the U S or something. Um, but how, um, how would you through, uh, the social, through the idea of the socius, um, uh, look at, uh, a stat a Stalin, Stalin led, uh, Soviet union, like how, how would that fit into the, into the capitalist socius, um, and, uh, representation? How, how did, you're talking about Stalinist Russia and how it worked within the same principles? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, does it still completely fit or, or is there something that is maybe slightly different worth looking at? I, the realities of the USSR, Jack nailed it. It's, it's produced through the socialists. It, none of this is like produced counter to that. The prevailing realities of how production worked there still were ultimately set up and organized by capital. Now, how capital worked may be different, how the society worked, but it's the reason that China's very much not a communist state, I guess, but I would very much say that there's money flowing, money determines where people work, and production determines how people work from on high. It may be centrally planned, all of those fun things, but it doesn't drive in a different direction the way that it ultimately manufactures the desires of people. To tack on to that, it's worth keeping in mind, like, so capitalism is the exterior limit, right? In that sense, it's not getting at the justification of the USSR or any country in terms of identifying an economic system. It is to say that the USSR is produced with the limit of capitalism, right? That exterior limit. So it's not an argument over like, can we categorize it as socialist or capitalist? It's an argument of, and actually, Brooks, when you said like how things are flowing in that, I mean, that I think that's a large part of it is the disjunctive um, synthesis going on there, right? That is the production of the USSR. That is the distribution that um, takes place. Yeah, maybe my my question is like I I totally get that um, the USSR is produced uh, through through that, and also that um, desire is manufactured, um, like that the that the state manufactures that. Or that the socialist manufactures the, uh, the desire of, of well, uh, the actors uh, living in the um, in the Soviet Union. 
Um, but my question is is mostly like when you talk about capitalism. Um, yeah, no. Can you can you manufacture uh, desire through the socius that is not a capitalist socius? I'm I'm gonna reply and then I'll turn it over to Brutz. I I don't think it's the state per se. Um, the the point of capital associates, right, is that that's not necessarily the state, although it affects whatever the state can and will do, and it makes use of the earth state um, in the recoding process, right? So in that sense, it's not it's not this is kind of a strangeness of it, but it's not Stalin per se that makes the USSR happen, right? Um, it it it's capital, right? That's the that is more or less the I mean, that is the socios. So in that sense, right, to get to the second part of your question before I turn it over, um, this is why section um, 4.3 and, and this book will go the way it does, but particularly why it ends, 4.3 ends the way it does in this point of the destructive task is they're not arguing that we need to make a shift to socialism um, or, or whatever. They're arguing that we need to use these two tasks um, to encourage basically a new socius. And that's very challenging to unpack in five minutes, but <laughs> that's kind of the argument in a sense is that there's a there's a sense in which they're calling for um, a new socius, what they call a new herd. And, and I would a third deterritorialization. And again, I, I, go, I go back to what is causing people to want the things they want and what is causing things to be manufactured and built at a social level. What is taking credit for that? And well, in Soviet Russia, it may have been the state. Ultimately, cash, the ruble, is the thing that really actually ran the overall socialist. The example would be simple. Over time in uh, Soviet Russia, the ruble, because everyone kind of got paid the same amount and everyone kind of had... It was like coupons more than it was like dollars. It was a different thing. They didn't have supply demand curves. People got as much as they got. But the problem is there was a few issues. First off, as more people came uh, to get employed, they had to be paid. But the goods didn't really increase uh, as a thing. They didn't really move stuff up. People also wanted higher quality shit. They were kind of tired of stuff uh, at the base level, if you can aspire that to anything else. But then uh, all of that sort of led to people having excess rubles for work they were doing. They had capital. Like that's, that's what that is. Excess money from being paid for work and the excess from that is capital. What they did with it instead of, because they couldn't fund companies or anything, instead the gray and black market took off like nobody's business. Uh, the great example I love is uh, cars. Uh, if you wanted a car, you'd have to uh, stand in line basically. There was a queue to buy a new car. But if you had enough of the other stuff, you could buy a used car pretty much any time. And so everyone kind of got into this weird used car business <laughs> and this strange sort of secondary market of fixing those cars and then making them fancier. And this gray market that was just sort of organically merged and created out of it ultimately was produced by having excess capital in hand. This, this setup continued in a lot of different ways. They had goods from outside the country, from the West, uh, all sorts of things in this gray and black market. And so as you start, again, playing into 
what was produced, what was moving around, what was decoded and what was recoded within Soviet Russia, it was capital. And we don't call it that necessarily because we have a very specific skewed view of what capital is. But as far as I'm concerned, if you have excess money after labor and that then scales and changes how production happens, I don't see how that's anything but capital myself. Let me throw in one more thing before Amisha and then perhaps someone else responds. Because I, I noticed you used the word manufacture. And before I continue, Cosmic Debris, love the name, love the picture, man. I was listening to Lumpy Gravy earlier. Rock on. Um, but going back to that now, um, I noticed you used the word manufacture. And th this is what I mean about like the unadulterated naturalism. Like, and I'm, and I, I'm not trying to be snooty when I do this, but there is something I think to be said here in that the, the point of the desiring production and the social production being different than the I believe, right, than being different than a problem of ideology, a problem of the preconscious, uh, and so on and so forth, um, is to get at this point that the flows of capital are flows of desire, right? This is why the masses, um, it's not sufficient to say that they were tricked. It is sufficient to say that they were produced through these desires, and that is what consummated them as real. The masses, that is. That is what's consummated the masses as real. Um, you know, for, for better or worse, however regrettable that is for somebody who wants to take a different approach, fair enough. But to lose in Guadari's position is that that's, it's not an, um, it's not an artificial desire that produces them. It is social production itself. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's really fascinating because when you get into how the actual functioning of the USSR worked, I mean, they had, they tried basically a different version of capitalism. Uh, the way factories worked, they still made a surplus. Like it's, it's the nature of the beast when you use money the way that they did in production, the way they did, even if it's state control. So this, this surplus very often factories would uh, have and keep. And at some point they would decide to, within their own, oh, there's a word for it in Russian, I don't know, within their own sort of grouping, they would give that money to the people who have raw resources to build houses and housing. And so the factories that had surplus built better housing because they had more of it for their employees. And so people would want to work at those companies more. This, again, this, the people didn't own these buildings. The factories did, which in essence, the state sort of did. But like that's a, again, I, it, how these things flowed and how people's lives were determined is still through capital, ultimately. And, that, and again, not trying to be snooty or, or pedantic about it, but it is, an, it is a really critical distinction in this book, I think. Because at that level, right, that, you know, what we're basically talking about here is the molar. And, and that's really important, right? I mean, the stuff we're talking about here has a, certainly has an exigency. Um, but this is where that destructive task also has its exigency, right? What's going on in the molar and social production and its relationship to the representation um, uh, applied to it, right? That is itself a whole, um, to put it simply, that is a, a question of the apparatus and the production, right? 
And then we have the molecular in terms of its production and the way that all three of these things fit together. And that I think is like, to give a very simple schema, the crux of this, because any any political change, any any question of emancipation is going to have to deal with those those terms. And it won't be, to get a, an, another conclusion, it won't be sufficient to simply focus on the molar nor will it be sufficient to simply focus on the representation. You know, the, mm-hmm. the limit of capital um, as socius, right? The absolute limit, I think is what they call it, is the body without organs. That becomes the condition, um, to use one of Guattari's terms from his earlier writing, and it's a term I'm a really big fan of, that becomes the condition um, for producing, uh, I suppose the technical term, for producing getting unstuck to get out of being stuck. I think it's very well put, I think. Does that answer, Misha, or anyone else? Yeah. And it's good time, because we also have to go now. And I, I think we all do. English, though. <laughs> I think we all do. So uh, with that, I am going to close this out, because we went a little bit overboard tonight. That's that's great uh thank all of you for joining us next week we will be continuing next week we will not be continuing i'm taking next week off again i know i just did this for my own surgery uh my i'm not going to be doing this uh, my daughter's being born next monday so and that's at the latest so it's a fairly guaranteed thing so probably not going to do readings next week and the week after uh, at some point we will be continuing uh 4.4 and please join us when we do i'd love to have those conversations Thank all of you for joining us, and uh, I'll talk to you next time.